Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store, Regent Street in London. Please welcome our guest moderator, journalist and broadcaster, Miranda Sawyer. Hello. How nice. Very nice of you to applaud. That's very nice. But I know you're not really applauding me. You're going to be applauding my, uh, my guest, who is Ben Wheatley. I'm going to do a quick introduction, and then we're going to see a trailer of his new film, A Field in England, which is coming out on Friday. If you don't know about Ben, he is a fantastic director of uh, films. He does other stuff, but the films are what he's known for. Um, he, I, want, I don't want to say exploded into international consciousness, but I will say he, he launched himself with uh, Down Terrace and then came, went on to uh, make Kill List and Sightseers, all of which uh, attracted a lot of attention and awards. And now he's mailed, made a field in England, which I have seen, I presume... Has anyone seen here? No, you've not seen it. It's great. It's a trip. Um, he's over there. He's going to come on after we've seen the trailer. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Wheatley. Hello. <laughs> Come sit down. Hello. So, shall we talk a field? I know there's people here. It's weird, oh, isn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? Um, shall we talk a field? Uh, okay. So, it's quite hard for me to sum this film up. So, I'm going to give slight... Uh, You're going to hot potato it to me, aren't Yeah, you? I'm going to slightly throw it to you. <laughs> but I would like to say that there are elements that we uh, can talk about. It's set during the Civil War. We see a little bit of that, but that's not really what it's about. Um, there are uh, indications of alchemy and magic within there. Mm. There's a lot of mushrooms. Um, and it's all set in a field. Do you want to kind of unpick it a little bit without you know, spoiling the trip that people can have when they see it on Friday night? Uh, yeah, I think you've got the elevator pitch right <laughs> there. You know, It's like basically the idea of a, 
um, people escape. Uh, from a research that we did, we found that lots of people would kind of, um, during a battle in the Civil War, might just decide not to do it anymore and just walk off from both sides and then just disappear into the, into the woods or whatever. So that's kind of what's happening here. They kind of, at the beginning, we get a load of four or five characters come out of the, uh, uh, of the hedges and then they, they decide just to knack off. Um, but the adventures that they have afterwards are, are particularly mushroom-fueled. So yeah. um, obviously none of you people have ever taken mushrooms, I'm, I, I can see by your clean-cut faces, you know. But, um, you know, if one was to take them, then it might be a little bit like what happens in this film. I'm told by my experts. <laughs> um, why particularly the Civil War? Was that something that you... I mean, given that if we look at your, your previous films, uh, which is, you know, about a kind of small-town gangsters, about slightly mm. about hitmen and the occult, mm. and uh, about, well, a, a kind of murderous <laughs> caravanners, um, the Civil War is not necessarily where you, you would have thought you would have stepped to. I don't know. I mean, I think each of the choices after each film's, we'd, we could have the same conversation, couldn't we? You know, going, why are you doing a film about caravanning after <laughs> an occult hitman movie? You know, so I, I, you know, I think there was we really wanted all all of us involved, and um, Amy Jump, who wrote it, and um, and Laurie Rose, the DOP, and we, we all chatted about you know the idea that we wanted to do something that was period. And we really fancied that, you know, and I love all the costumes and stuff. And then like, my, my son came on set. And it was the first time he'd ever reacted to my job like I was actually doing something. Because usually, you, they, you know, he comes on and it's just a load of wet people in cagoules or something. And it doesn't <laughs> look like anything's happening. But when you come on and there's guys with swords and stuff, it was... Yeah, that they're doing that, acting. Yeah, doing proper acting in the past and creating something that's, you know... That but what's interesting about that is I think that generally when we uh, think about kind of films, period films, what we tend to think of is that, that BBC idea that we must see the cobbles and we must witness the interior of an inn in mm. order to understand that it's in the past. And actually, this is entirely in a field. So the only notion that we have that's in the past is in the costumes and the way that people are yeah. and the the plot w and, the w and the way they react to each other, but it's essentially in a field, so we don't have any of those kind of references. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, one of the things we thought about a lot when we made the film is this idea of kind of that there's no context to it. I mean, there's no date, really. You pick up little bits about what, what time period it's set in through the dialogue, but it's not, it's not in your face. And, that, and the thinking about that was that, you know, basically if you travel back in time tomorrow and you, you hung around with these guys, they wouldn't explain anything. It's only in films that people get into all this exposition and go, oh, yes, of course, it's the Civil War, you know. Yes, they, the they king just, has just walked around the corner. Yeah, that, so, so we wanted that, that, that kind of immersion so that you felt that you were out of your depth and you were trying to struggle with, with, with the history in a way that you would do if you, if you go abroad to a country that you don't know the culture and you're always one a couple of steps behind it. Um, so that, you know, so I think... So there's no, there's no quarter given in, in, the, um, in the way that the, the history's delivered in this film. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, I've seen the film once, and what uh, I mean, I presume when you go and see it, you may well have the same reaction. You actually want to go back and see it again because there's, you feel like there's something, there's bits that you, you're missing that's going on. But there is essentially um, uh, the, these kind of bands get together, and they're, slight, they're all very different characters. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the characters, and then we'll show a clip. But there's one particular character who's played by Rhys Shearsmith who is very different from the others who appear to be just essentially soldiers, kind of mercenaries. Mm. And he has a slightly more elevated position, doesn't he? He's like a, an alchemist, a magician type. 
kind of an assistant to. Yeah. He's not even that grand. <laughs> you know. He's um, open to be. Yeah, yeah. He's he's studying under his master to try and get to that position. Yeah, I mean, I, what, what we really liked about the the idea of it was it's the first film that we've done that's about groups of people coming together who don't know each other, who have to become friends. You know, and, and we'd, we after making Kill List and making Sightseers and Down Terrace, really, we... we Amy and I both felt a bit like wrung out, like we'd made we'd made these films about quite cynical, nasty people, and we wanted to make something that was a bit more about friendship. Yeah, and not so much about messed up families. No, exactly. So they, they, so there is that thing of. Also, it's the first one we've done that's just all men. There's no women in it, but then it's written by a woman, so you get that kind of weird that that balance. But it, it you know, it's it, the the story of it. One layer one layer of it is obviously what we just said about people dropping loads of mushrooms and going out of their minds. The other one is a nice tale about men getting to know each other and becoming friends. I think that is a good cue for our first clip because they are getting to know each other in the first clip. So should we have a look at that? Merry band, are we not? Formed merely by the alchemy of circumstance, we would not otherwise associate. Many chums have you? Back home. It's mostly been amongst books. My bull scream like harpies. Nevertheless, it is indeed a pleasure to find like-minded company in such remote parts. Where am I? Monmouthshire. That in Essex, is it? No. Don't bother. He is the call and puts one foot in front of the other. Isn't that so, brother? My master predicts that impending events will stagger the monarchy kingdom. After the outhouse, I shall stagger southeast. I believe I have distant relatives at Gloucester. I might go there. Perhaps they have a large linen cupboard in which you could hide. <laughs> no stoat in here, is there? None. We give thee humble thanks for this thy special bounty, beseeching thee to continue thy loving kindness unto us, that our land may yield us her fruits of increase to thy glory and our comfort. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Long walk, that, Gloucester. Better done on a full stomach. Tell a lot of them, do you? What? Buttons. Yeah, loads. Just rabbit? No! Which end of this mysterious beast do I have, then? The arse end. <laughs> Go. High-octane stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so they're bonding over, essentially, food, jokes about bums. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's a, you know... It's, a, it's a men. It's yeah, meant together, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So they, they do bond, but then there's a... The, it's hard, because I don't really want to give away the plot, because the plot is kind of almost... It's not superfluous to the film. It's perhaps... Um, Miranda. No, it's not. <laughs> but it's like the joy of the film is not necessarily in the plot, I yeah, would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of the joy of the film is the way that it is filmed. So it's filmed yeah. in black and white. There's a, there's a particular kind of sequence towards the end which is uh, very interesting and visual. Yeah. Can we say trippy? You can we say trippy? I got it. I'll say it. Okay. Trippy. It's very trippy. It's very trippy. Um, it's We're not like... It doesn't look like films that we see 
uh, the contemporary films. It looks very different to me. That's obviously a deliberate decision. Yeah, I mean, it's, stuff, it, it, it's harking back to those kind of midnight movies that were made in the 70s, you know, and, and seeing those, like, in a way, we were looking at a razor head, and, and, and not, not necessarily stylistically, but, you know, what that film is, the content of that film, and how people kind of came to that movie. And we were hoping to kind of make... It'd been bouncing around in my head for a long time of making a film that was like a Roger Corman uh, kind of psychedelic trip film, but also, yeah, making something that was consciously a midnight movie. And it was not polite, you know, and, uh, but it was also a lot about seeing it in the cinema and seeing the incredible, you know, being um, kind of visually spoken to, you know, and, and that, that the experience of, of watching the film was as much as it was a big part of the movie itself, you know. So... And we, to Amy and I, toyed around with with um, kind of psychedelic um, uh, sequences and stuff, and how we could incorporate them into the move into movies. And then this, this this kind of married together with this idea of doing something about the Civil War. After we did a load of research about mushroom circles and um, people grinding mushrooms up into dust and blowing them into people's faces, and lots of kind of magic that was happening around that period, and it seemed to fit with these two kind of ambitions of going, oh, we want to do a period film. We like psychedelic movies and then suddenly it, it kind of came together and when you when it's shown on friday given that that the idea of a kind of midnight film which is the idea that you you come to it late you've been out and then you know you you commune with the, the with other people in it that that, that are watching it that's yeah. kind of part of the experience of it or you'd come home and watch a razor head on a video with your mates wouldn't yeah. you um, on Friday, you're launching the film and you're launching it over lots of different types of, of, of media, aren't you? So you can mm. go see it in a film, you can see it on, on the telly, you, yeah. can, it's, you can stream it all at the same time. Is that to um, kind of enhance that experience, a similar kind of late-night communal experience? I'm more, it's more to do with that when I saw Kill List on film four and it was right at the end of the cycle, of, you know, a, a movie will come out in festivals and then in the cinema and then on DVD and then finally it hits TV. And, but the hit TV, for my films anyway, is the biggest audience you ever get. You know, it's a massive audience. Um, far dwarfs all the other mediums, really. Um, so I kind of thought, this is really weird that we save the biggest audience till last. Why don't we have that on the first weekend? And then they, you know, if there's going to be any word of mouth generated, it'll be generated by that big audience. And they, they, they would, you know, talk to... Um, their friends maybe and say they like the film and then they'd all go to the cinema and see that and or buy the DVD and there's definitely stuff of you know the the the, the TV um, screening there is always a spike in the DVD sales as well so and also it's everyone's efforts instead of being in little dribs and drabs for the PR the actual all the all the kind of buzz around the film could be generated in one moment so that's kind of that that was the main start of the main thinking to try and use that film for channel and go God it's here we can actually tell loads more people about it in a way that we wouldn't be able to do normally because we could never afford TV ads, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that was it, really, and, and just to, you know, to get it out there to as many people as possible. But it's interesting, isn't it, because that uh, goes against quite a lot of thinking of, around films, doesn't it? The well, idea is that you launch it on the, yeah. on, the, on, the on the big screen. Yeah, well, it's counterintuitive, but for, for my understanding of the way the movies, my movies have gone in the past is that they, you know, you... you um, the audience that go to see a film in the cinema are not the s don't don't see at home having a dilemma on whether they want to save money on going to the cinema or not. They're going to the cinema, whatever, come hell or high water, and they want to they want that cinema experience. I mean, I think I think if you're Iron Man two or three or whatever, you've got more of a worry because you're opening on a, on a load more screens. So then you might be biting into that audience, the casual audience. But when, with a film like 
this, you, you're maybe opening on 15 screens. So most of the population of the UK can't see it, you know, because they won't travel more than yep. 15 minutes to go to the cinema. So at that point, you're kind of, they're all excited about it and they never get to see it until like really down the line. So you might as well just show it to everybody and then they can make a decision, you know, they can talk about it to other, other people. And also, if they have the same reaction as me, they'll want to go back and see it again anyway. Yes, it was cleverly designed like that. <laughs> for, us, for us to do that. Um, it was shot very quickly. It was shot in two weeks, is that right? Yes, 12 days, yes. 12 days. Um, that is really quick, I understand, for films. It is, but not really. You know, Why not? In, in the world of, like, Roger Corman, he was doing lots of films for in, in 12 days, and... Um, the uh, you know shot corridor was shot in 12 days. You know there's a lot of there's a, there's a precedent for it, but it's basically could only be done in um, when you've got very specific locations that you don't have to move around a lot in. And our film was still shot outdoors, so it's natural light. So that 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 a lot of the arse of filmmaking is about moving lamps about and turning them on and off. So once you eliminate that, then it goes a lot quicker. That and is it not when you're outdoors waiting for the planes to stop going over? Yeah. There's that. <laughs> you know, trippy as the film is, justifying helicopters and jets <laughs> flying in the background is, is, is hard. Yeah. There must be something that also makes that experience, uh, given it's such a short suit, uh, short shoot, um, and you're making quite an intense film that makes mm. it even more intense if you're doing it in such a short time. Yeah, I mean, we'd, we got that, we'd, we'd had that experience from shooting Down Terrace originally, the first film, which was even quicker, like eight days. And, and like, the, the, the thinking behind it was that, you know, the shortest film you can shoot is a football match, which is 90 minutes. They do that in real time, and no one complains about that or says it's an amazing feat, you know. But it's basically a documentary that's shot, you know, that's shot in a field in one location, basically. So, you know, that's where I got it, got the idea from. But, um, uh, and a lot of documentaries are, you know, you know primary. The, 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 the um, Peter Baker documentary about JFK was shot in um, two days, and that's a feature-length thing. So, again, it's not, you know... So as long as the actors know their words... <laughs> And you know what you're doing. Shooting that quick isn't really a, a problem. You know, and 12 days seems a lot of time to shoot 90 minutes when you think about it. Yeah, it's just that, you, that one isn't used to that these days. You're used to kind yeah. of things like taking six weeks or even longer, I suppose, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does depend on how the film's been designed. If it's lots of different locations, we have to, I mean, like sightseers we did in a month, which is still quite quick, but, it, but it's a lot of locations, a lot of moving around, a lot of logistics, yeah. and that, you can't hurry that. You know, that has to just be what it is. Um, but yeah, if you're shooting just in, you know, three or four rooms and it's all in one location, then spending months on it may be, you know, a bit, bit strange. <laughs> yeah, a bit weird. Um, I read also somewhere that the black and white was part of that, uh, choosing to shoot in black and white was actually uh, part of that as well, given that you don't have to worry about light, light changes um, so much. It was kind of, that's something that occurred to us as we were shooting. And, and it also occurred to us when we'd, we'd, we'd looked at... We'd researched other movies that are shot in exterior black and white. And when you turn the sound off, you realise that there's a lot of weird light continuity that no one seems to ever have noticed, but in colour is like glaringly horrible. But I mean, the, the, the black and white for us, had, Laurie and I had done a lot of tests um, over, the, over the years and kind of starting to try and understand why we liked it, why it was so seductive. And we kind of came to the conclusion that it was the difference between the two, to, between colour and black and white, is that you. With black and white, you proce you're processing texture and, and your eye is drawn to faces. But with colour, you've got to deal against like, big slabs of blue and green and, and their costumes, and you get to their faces last. So in a way, black and white seems oddly more immediate and more real to you because your brain is 
designed to look at faces. Yeah, and you have some very interesting faces in that film. Yeah, they, 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 every nook and cranny of those faces has got mud rubbed in it, so they look <laughs> particularly kind of uh, uh, detailed. Shall we see um, the next clip, which is, introduces um, a kind of bad guy, we can call him, can't we? He's uh, uh, an ambiguous character. Yes, an ambiguous character. I've had little success in applying the master's arts. I've been looking for anything of great worth. Which is why I've conjured you. This place holds a great treasure. I am certain of it. I merely require a keener eye to pinpoint a particular location. As much as I detest you personally, my dad, I acknowledge that your gifts are stronger in certain areas. But you and I might define in what? I have little of my master's art in divination. You are confused, sir. It is I who am capturing you, not the other way round. <laughs> Do not concern yourself with bravery and I, white head. It is official. You're my prisoner. Now you will find the treasure in this field, and they will dig it up, and I will claim it. I will not assist you in such an ungodly scheme, sir. essentially a, a, a small scene about the quest, isn't it? Yeah, so that's the exposition, exposition scene. That is the one exposition yeah, scene yeah. <laughs> as to what that's is actually going on. Yeah, yeah. What is actually going on. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of alchemy and magic that was, a, that was around there, because I know that you have done your research, despite the fact that claiming you're not, um, you know, a kind of expert around the Civil War. But the idea of searching for, uh, for conjuring things up, Mm. Believing in alchemy, believing that, that that things could be found in that way by divination, that was uh, kind of prevalent then, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot. We, when we started reading around the subject, there seemed to be a, quite a lot of um, people trying to get money to go on on treasure hunts and, and and raising money to go off on these ridiculous things. But obviously, they're just pocketing it. And there's a lot of kind of you know just the the swindling of, of, of rich, stupid people um, <laughs> to, to go on these things. And, and they were always looking for this stuff and digging it up in fields. So that, that was, that, that's something that had come from the period that had in, inspired it. Um, but uh, I just think that people were just ready at, you know, to believe, in, you know, if it's said in a, in a kind of straight enough face, with a straight enough face, people would believe anything, you know. It's like, you know, when I pick up my, 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 um, my iPhone, or I pick up a or I watch a television. You know, how does it work? You could tell me anything about that. About how magic. It is literally magic. You know, it's you know I'm I'm you know I'm I'm confident in my my position as someone in the modern world that I'm you know okay with these things. I've got no idea. I can barely wire a plug. Beyond that, I've no idea. So you know, I think that there was lots of experts at the time, kind of telling people stuff that everyone was just swallowing. You know, lock stop. But yeah. To find, and off they went to find treasure. Yeah. Um, 
Given that your fil this film is so different from the... Well, your, all your films are different, but it is a particular kind of step sideways. You know, um, do you ever wonder about the kind of reception that you will get to, to a film of this sort? Or doesn't it really bother you? Um, obviously, in a cinema full of people booing and throwing ink at me, <laughs> it would be bad. <laughs> would be well, fundamentally terrifying. <laughs> but um, not really. I mean, I think you, you kind of... You, you're, what the, the bet that you have with the audience is that you're, what you're betting is your own um, uh, kind of link to the audience. So, I mean, I, 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 I've always tried to make films that I wanted to see myself, and then I hope that there's a lot of other people that are a bit like me, and then that's OK. Beyond that, you can't do anything. As soon as you start thinking in terms of oh, you know, this part of the audience and that part of the audience, and if we can make them happy and them happy, then you're lost, I think, because it's like, then it's... But that's quite actually quite hard to do, given that, you know, people worry about money and they worry about audiences. To, to make a film, as you do, films mm. that you want to make and films that you believe will be liked by people who have the same taste or slightly similar taste to you, yeah. that is actually quite hard to do. Yeah, but then this film is kind of... I'd say modestly budgeted, so it can't really lose in that respect. So that that kind of commercial, in a way, it's a it's a bit it's a bit difficult to grasp. But it's an incredibly strange film, which is also incredibly commercial at the same time. But it's no one's ever gonna no one's gonna get their Ferrari off the back of it. But it will make <laughs> its money back, and then and that's for me that's good. You know, that's that's what it should be about. Everyone gets paid, and the thing makes its money back, and we live to fight another day. You know, um, I think if you're pursuing if you're taking millions and millions of pounds off someone. Got a, you're supposed to give it, get it to come back. And also, that, they're allowed know. to stick their oar in. Well, yeah, exactly. But then they should because it's like you know that that's the that's the agreement, isn't it? You're you you know the more money you know the the more people that you have to get in, the the broader the kind of um, uh, the audience it is. Then the more people you have to you know the, you have to make like it. Whereas my, my stuff, you don't so much. So it's it, I don't worry when people are, have absolute marmite reactions to stuff because it's just that's kind of good in a way. You know. Yeah. Um, I'm going to show one more clip, which is um, when they're... Well, obviously, they're looking for treasure, which we're never quite sure what they're looking for, um, but they have to dig, and we are going to see them dig. I am my own man. I am my own man. This is a fine arm we've had here. The devil has to give us that. You dumb bastard! 
That black dot is basically whatever. I, whenever I do my tax return, I see that <laughs> approaching you, <laughs> coming towards me and enveloping me. <laughs> oh. yeah. um, I don't actually want to kind of unpick the film anymore, given that I'm hoping you're all going to go and see it, and it seems slightly, you know, pointless to unpick it anymore. So I'm going to ask you, the lovely audience who's sitting there, patiently and yet looking gorgeous, if you have any questions for um, Ben. If you don't, it's not a problem. I can carry on talking pretty much, you know, for the whole evening. But it's yeah. always nice if you have questions. Oh, Christ, oh, no, 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 That's terrifying. OK, I saw you first, so yes. Thank you. Uh, I noticed in one of the first clips it was raining. Was yes. that real rain or was that uh, you...? Magic of cinema yes. rain. No, it was real rain. And then whenever it rained, we would go, ah, production value. Because <laughs> to make it rain like that would be really expensive and, and difficult. And we'd have to set up loads of pipes and they have to colour the water so you can see it in the whole nine yards. But no, it was, it was, it was real, absolutely real. And, it, and, and luckily for us, it kind of went on for a long time. <laughs> so we managed to get the scene done in, in the rain. But, but it was really, yeah, it was really odd. We just sit, you know, with a, with a bunch of grown men sitting around in the rain going, oh, you know, you just don't get that an excuse to do that normally um, unless you're at a festival or something. Well, yeah. it's fortunate rain then. It was good, you know, but basically it's something that we'd, we'd, we'd come to after doing sightseers where you just go, it's weather, it's Britain and it's going to do something horrible to you. You can't count on it. So, um, so you know, on sightseers I got quite a good set of waterproof clothes. So I don't, I don't fear the rain, yeah. you know, bring, okay. bring it on. Yeah. You know. There was a question over here I saw someone actually. Yeah, with you, yeah. Hi. Um, my question is, how long do you spend at the script stage and like, kind of what's your kind of approach to the script before you actually start shooting? Um, the script on uh, Field in England had been worked on over like 15 years and um, I'd written many, many drafts of it. And right at the end, my wife, Amy Jump, who wrote, co-wrote Kill List with me, did her draft on it. And this is a mark of our how our collaboration works. She changed the character names and the title of the film. She changed the dialogue and everything that happened in the film. <laughs> so I looked at it and went, oh, I read it. I thought it was great. And my last act of writing on that script was to rub my name off the front of it <laughs> and go, I, you know. So, yeah. And, and she's, uh, she's interesting because, she, because she's an editor as well. So marrying those two jobs together makes for, um, I think, is a the kind of unique thing that we've got going on our movies that the, the writer gets to do the final draft in the, in the cut, which is usually their lot, you know, the, the, a writer in an edit suite is a very rare thing indeed, usually, so, in cinema anyway. So, um, uh, yeah, that's kind of our process. But I've been writing with Amy since I was, I was, since I was about 17, so I'm used to this kind of rough handling in terms of <laughs> collaboration. So you can usually spot our scripts. If, if it's a Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump script, then I probably had a, more of a go. If it's Amy Jump and Ben Wheatley, then, then she's probably got rid of a lot of what I've written. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was a question on the front. Was it you? Who was? Yeah. Um, as a filmmaker, do you usually, uh, or is it usual? Hold the mic a little closer. Yeah. Yeah, is it usual for filmmakers to actually be the author of the script, or do they normally have scripts given to them? Um, there's, a f there's lots of different flavours of it. You know, sometimes it's writer-directors 
sometimes they're um, producers as well, so they'll look for material and bring to. Or sometimes you're you're like hired in, so the thing's all set up, and they go, who who can we get to do this? And they get someone in, and they interview a lot of different directors, and they see who who will make the fit. So, yeah. Um, so there's lots of different ways of doing it, really. Do you have? A, I mean, your preferred way is to to provide the script and do it yourself. Is that right? No, I mean I've done. I've, I've made four films and two of them I've been involved mm. in the script writing and two of them I haven't. But, you know, I've done a lot of TV as well where I didn't write the script. And so it, it, it's a different experience, but it's, it's perfectly valid each time. I don't have one, where, one or the other where I'm desperate to write them and, and direct them all the time. Um, I know what my strengths and weaknesses are in that respect. And um, I mean, the, the advantage of when you've written the script yourself is that you can pull pages out of it during the shoot and go, I don't want to do this bit anymore. Yeah. And no one complains. But if you've got the writers on set and you do that, they all as get in, the hump. Yeah, yeah or, or they're acting in it as <laughs> yeah. in sightseers. Yeah, so that yeah. could be quite difficult, I yeah, that, that's, that's, yeah, you have to be a bit more gentle. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like you and Amy. No, going, no, no. You just kind of fold the page over. You don't rip it out and go, this, I can't film this crap. I'm really sorry. We're running out of time for that scene. Anyway. <laughs> Can I just, just one other thing is the characters in there, I could smell them and they were horrible. <laughs> I think that might be me, actually. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, I just wondered about the casting process because talking about the characters, they mm. were they people, the actors that you had in mind beforehand. Yeah, I mean, what we tend to do is um, that we've on all the films that we've done, pretty much that there's been a rewriting stage after the casting set to make sure that the actors can say the words, you know. And, and that's it. Sounds a bit strange that, but I find that. Like bad performance is not always the actor's fault. It's often the script that they can't say it, and everyone has a different meter in the way they speak. And sometimes you can literally write words that people can't say, and they come out of their mouths like lead bricks. So we we kind of um, once we've finished the casting process, we we then or we Amy on this case would tweak the script. But then some of the parts were written with people in mind. So the Whitehead part was written with Reese in mind, and and. Um, uh, Michael Smiley's part was written, uh, O'Neill's you know, O'Neil character was written for him. He was like the first person we were thinking about when we were putting the project together. So, so yeah, I mean, casting, the, on the four films that I've done, the casting's been something that we've had a, it's part and parcel of the making of the movie rather than something that happens very early on, rather than, you know, you have a script and you think, who could be in this? Who's about what we can stick in this? It's more like the, the casting starts, it, the film starts with the casting and then go, you know, with Kill List, for instance, it was like, oh, I really like working with Michael Smiley. I really like working with Neil Maskell. How can we get them together? Oh, also, I like Mianna Buring, and maybe she'd be as good as Maskell's wife. And what story fits that? So we, we kind of start, we go the other way than they usually do. And when you do, I mean, there's very different accents in the in, uh, in a field in England. Yeah. And given that you, once you're casting it, if you don't know the actor quite so well, it must be quite hard to get the metre of the way that they talk. Does it change when you're actually filming it? Um, no, it's usually all right by that point. But, it, it, yeah, it's... Um, I've had it from, you know, when I started writing... It, you, I don't know, you learn these little bits which are so bleeding obvious. <laughs> when I say it out loud, you go, well, that, you, you didn't know that. But when I, I mean, the first thing I, I made, first short I made, I, I'd, I'd never read the script out loud before we shot it. So when the poor actors tried to say the lines, it was like, oh, God, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, but it's stuff like that. You do the read-through and you listen to the read-through and you go, right, okay, 
this stuff this stuff's not working why you know is it is it because they're not putting 100% into the performance on the on the read through or the rehearsal thing or is it because it's just that the way that they speak just doesn't allow them to say the words you know and then you then you change it yeah, yeah. but th but to be honest this script was um the one the, the least changed of all the scripts that we've done it was there's no improvisation in it and it i think we lost like two lines out of the whole thing in the edit so it's yeah solid that one um, hello, the back. Hello. Uh, you said that you thought this was a midnight movie, and traditionally midnight movies have things other films don't, like mm. sex and violence. It was very much a product of the 60s and 70s. But sex and violence is fairly easy to come by now. So mm. what do you think a modern midnight movie has to have to differentiate itself? Um, I think it, um, a modern midnight movie has to be... Um, a kind of just a different vision from the mainstream as much as possible and a, and a, and a kind of uh, something that you just can't get anywhere else so obviously seeing some sk some clips of people dr eating soup very slowly and digging a hole <laughs> may not be floating your boat on that right now but um, you know these are the vagaries of, uh, of, a, of an event like this but uh, yeah I think there's there's stuff in it that I'm hoping that will you know people will enjoy then and certainly enjoy late at night and on big screens and loud. Anybody else? Um, so you've mentioned uh, Roger Corman quite a lot mm. in, uh, in the, the things that you've been sort of talking about. Would you say that there was a kind of, is that a sort of deliberate model that you've taken on as a filmmaker of his sort of traditional sort of low budget, quick shooting, uh, sort of, turning it around and do you think that's a model that sort of the British film industry should sort of take on a lot more if that makes sense yeah I mean I in, in terms of shooting quickly and shooting um, modestly and I, I, I'm not saying cheaply because that sounds bad but um, uh, I, I think it's allowed me to make more films than I would have done you know it just by the experience we're having at the moment where we're putting together a bigger budget movie, it's all about the finance and it takes bloody ages, you know. It's a lot of meetings about finance and it all just goes on and on and on. Or I could be making another film. Um, and I think that um, as soon as you let go of that idea that you need lots of money to make a movie, then you're, it's, a, it's, it's total freedom. And the thing for, for us was that when we, when we made Down Terrace, we realised that, that, you know, at that point, Down Terrace to eight days to shoot costs six grand to shoot shoot it and that means that at any point you can jump out and make a film you know it, we could have done it cheaper if we hadn't have put everyone up in hotels you know <laughs> so and, and once you realize that that you don't have to ask permission of anybody to make a movie then that's that's great so there's no barrier to it anymore there's no there's no gatekeepers to the money necessarily there's no one telling you whether you can or cannot make a movie so that's that's more the more the attitude i don't know Corman. Coleman's very inspiring in that, that the energy of the thing and the, the, the fact that he gave, um, uh, he, he, you know, he was like a vampire feeding off um, very talented people and get them in and just give them a chance and give lots and lots of people chances. I think that, that's, that's brilliant. Um, but, uh, you know, also his other business model was kind of riding in headlines and finding out things within the news and reacting really quickly to it. That's not necessarily what, what I'm up to so much, but um, yeah. Do you think that um, modern equipment, meaning kind of you know cheaper, smaller, more accessible cameras, more accessible kind of editing suites you can have in your home, makes the idea of of uh, people brings the idea of filmmaking closer to yeah, inverted commas more ordinary people? Well, the fact that you can 
all that stuff about filmmaking is interesting, but the thing that I think has really made a difference to say something like that field in England is digital distribution, so that if you don't have to strike a print, so the print's costing grands and grands each one that you make, so it limits how many screens you can go to, and then those screens have to be packed out and make loads of money before you see any money back. So, you know, a digital print hardly costs anything, you know. So that, that's a massive revolution just in itself. So I think that, yeah, this film couldn't, couldn't have been distributed like this and it couldn't have been made like five years ago. And we found that with Down Terrace. We couldn't have made that film the year before we couldn't have made it. So I think that's, that's where technology's um, really helping. And very exciting, given yeah. that it's changing all the time. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. But the flip side of that is that there's loads of pencils around, but there's not loads of brilliant drawings, you know. So, you know, I mean, I always used to say that when I was a kid, I used to think, if only I had a camera, I could make loads of films. And then I borrowed one off someone and I still didn't make any films. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's not all about the equipment, it's about the will to do it, you know. Yeah. And final question was from you. Wait for the mic. It's nope. there, it's there. Were the um, costumes made from scratch or were they sourced? They, um, so we went, we were going to make them from scratch. And then we went to Angels, and they had all the costumes from uh, the Devil's Whore. It's like t it's like two thousand Civil War costumes, and they were all amazing. Fantastic. <laughs> so you know, it was brilliant. So we went around and had these and put um, uh, Emma Fryer, who was our uh, costume designer, just put them together for a mismatch from all these different bits and bobs. So yeah, you know, God bless Devil's Whore. I say, <laughs> fantastic, saved our ass. That's great. Well, I think we're kind of done. I'd like to thank you for being a lovely audience, and I'd like to thank Ben Whitley. Thank you, and thank you. Thanks for coming. <laughs>